Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mada and I'm the director of academic programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. We are back this week with a special episode on friendship in conjunction with our annual conference that takes place every year in October here at Bard College in New York. This year's topic is friendship and politics, and over the next few weeks and months, we are releasing four specials on essays by Arendt connected to the theme of friendship. Our first one is called Humanity in Dark Times from Arendt's book, Man in Dark Times. The second text is Socrates in The Promise of Politics. Our third friendship special discusses Jaspers, an essay that is also in Man in Dark Times. And lastly, we will analyze a letter to Gershom Scholem that was published in the Jewish Writings. To learn more about our conference on friendship and politics, please visit our website at hac.bard.edu. I am thrilled to now hand it over, like every week, to our host Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. He will dissect these texts with and for you, the political context, Arendt's take on friendship, and why it was important to her. Please leave us a like or comment and make sure to share today's reading with your friends. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm a founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Thrilled to be with you today for the virtual reading group. We are reading uh, Hannah Arendt's works on friendship. It's a topic that I, I think many uh, people sort of have have seen in Hannah Arendt's work. She's 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 called uh, a genius of friendship. She she clearly cultivated friendships throughout her life, and so there's the practice of friendship, which is absolutely core to Hannah Arendt's thinking. But then there's also the way friendship works in her thought, as especially in her political thought, and so. We talked last week when we were reading the, the essay on humanity in dark times about Lessing. We talked about friendship as both a private uh, activity and as a public activity. And for her, and we're going to talk about this today, friendship is essential to politics. And yet friendship is also part of what it means to be a meaningful uh, person. and so. One of the questions is, how do those go together? And I think uh, Jerry Cohn and I last week were, were trying to think this through. What does it mean? What is the, is, is, is friendship in the private sphere a kind of training for or habituating to or practice for friendship in politics? Or are they unrelated or are they two different things? And uh, in some sense, I think we have to ask, what is it? that friendship in private does and how is it related to friendship in politics? And so we're reading a series of her essays in which friendship is thematized. 
to try and uh, gain some clarity on uh, on on the importance of friendship, both as on its own, sweet, generous, but also uh, in her political thought. Before we just begin, just a reminder: uh, we are in the middle of our membership drive. Many of you have been joining, and I'm very grateful. If you haven't yet, and you need to, please do uh, at some point. Just click on over and and join the RN Center. You can join at any level, but it's helped support what we do and very much appreciate that. So thank you very much. So today uh, we're reading the essay Socrates, uh, the one that's published in The Promise of Politics. Obviously, uh, obviously I shouldn't say that, but Socrates was a major figure in RN's mental imagination. She wrote a number of different essays uh, called Socrates. There's two chapters on Socrates in the life of the mind, in the thinking section. Um, there's, there's this essay, and there's also an essay that was published separately, sort of similar to this, in Philosophy and Politics, uh, what was called Philosophy and Politics in Social Research, Volume 57. So this is a topic, Socrates, that she comes back to over and again. And why? What is the core interest that Arendt has in Socrates? Well, there's a couple, but it's about thinking. Socrates as, as the person, as the figure in the history of philosophy, who is not a philosopher, but a thinker. And the question that Socrates raises for Arendt, um, as well as Plato, is the relation between thinking and action. So to what extent is thinking not an action? And to what extent is someone who thinks outside of the polis, outside of the active world? And so she frames this question at the very beginning of, of this essay. And she says, how can man living in a polis, living in a political community, also live outside of politics? How do you live outside of politics? How are you stateless or isolated as a mere man or a philosopher? To the extent that philosophers turn away from the polis or the community, they seek to live a life of the mind, a life of solitude, a life isolated. Uh, they turn against the polis. And the, the philosopher who did this, above all, was Plato. And Arendt thinks that Plato did so uh, above all because of what happened to Socrates uh, at his trial and then um, execution. In a sense, Socrates was a philosopher or a thinker who lived in the world. He was a thinker who went into the marketplace and talked to people. And for doing that, he was put on trial and killed. And the reaction of Plato, his student and friend, was to say, we need to make philosophy, make a space for philosophy within the political world, find a space outside of the politics, and in a sense, turn philosophy into an activity that ignores the world, ignores other people. And so if the first set of oppositions is, thinking versus action. We have to make a space for thinking that is now separate from action. And philosophy is thus separate from the politics or the polis. 
A third is that philosophy is now going to concern itself with truth and not with opinion, not with what for the Greeks was called doxa, uh, opinion. And so uh, there's a fundamental philosophical prejudice against politics, against the many, against the people who will get caught up in movements, get caught up by demagogues, and will lead to mob actions and, and mob rule. And so the philosopher seeks to say, we're above that, we're better than that, and we concern ourselves with truth um, regardless of human affairs. And they leave politics. And there's a prejudice against politics that is inherent to philosophy. Later on in, in this book that this essay is in, The Promise of Politics, there's uh, a long essay, it's really like the beginning of a book that Arendt never wrote called Introduction into Politics. And in that book, which we've talked about a number of times, Arendt talks about how the real dangerous major prejudice of our time and one that began with Plato but has been growing is the prejudice against politics that began with philosophy and has continued with the rise of science and has really become powerful in our time with what we would call today the rule of experts or expert rule. And this is all tied back to Plato's rebellion against politics because of the trial of Socrates. Socrates himself, though, was someone who entered politics, uh, unlike Plato. And if Plato responded to the tyranny of truth, uh, to, to, the, to the danger of doxa and, and many opinions with the tyranny of truth, the need to impose an eternal truth which man, of which man can't be persuaded. So the idea that Arendt is talking about here is if politics is about many opinions and plurality and trying to persuade people, the philosopher, the scientist, the expert appears as someone who stands above, who doesn't think we can persuade the many. We just have to tell them what the experts know. And if we can't convince them through persuasion, we have to force them through myth or through propaganda whatever it is. And so Plato uses myths. Today, you know, we might say, or some might say that experts use a kind of a jargon that elevates them above the, the daily discourse so that what they say is considered to be ununderstandable and yet they're experts. And so it's true. Arendt here distinguishes this as the difference between persuasion, persuasive talk, which addresses a multitude and is engaged with opinions where many people try and talk to each other and persuade each other, versus dialectic, which addresses only one other. And if you, you know, read Plato's dialectic, his dialogues, you'll notice, I mean, you think, oh, he's just asking questions and getting answers, but it's not that way. I mean, the dialectic is a very violent way of teaching it. Any of you who are law teachers, as I have been at times in my life, and are trained in what's called the Socratic method or the, di you know, the, the dialectic method of teaching, you know, it presents itself as very open. We just ask questions and people answer, but it's a very violent way of teaching that constantly, it gets you, we, we know how to get where we want to go by getting people to give us the answers we want them to give us. And so 
it's it's not a, a matter of persuasion. It's a kind of leading uh, by an expert to the truth. Socrates himself, for Arendt, is the one philosopher or is the philosopher par excellence who rejects this method. Now, of course, because we know Socrates so much through Plato, we think of Socrates as a as a as someone who engages in the dialectic, who's someone who's not about persuasion, but is about pulling someone along. And in the later Plato dialogues, from the middle to the later period, that's what Socrates becomes. But Arendt's Socrates is an earlier Socrates. It's in the earlier dialogues of Plato, where Socrates is not yet leading people to a known conclusion. Socrates, in the early dialogues, is concerned with simply asking questions, showing people they don't know what they think they know, and not leading anywhere. There's no, there's no resolution in the early Platonic dialogues. And those are the dialogues in which Socrates is not the dialectical thinker who has, leads people down the primrose path to, to the truth, but is simply the questioner who shows that everything they think they know is not true, and we are left with confusion. This Socrates is the Socrates of the Doke Moi, uh, as the Greeks called it, and has Arendt so forcefully embraces. The Doke Moi, which is the way things appear to me, the way the world shows itself to me. Um, Moi is me, and Doke is to show. The point is that every single one of us in society, all human beings, are plural and individuals. And we, the world appears to us in a particular way. It's not an absolute. There's no absolute way that it appears to everyone. But it's also not simply merely subjective or arbitrary. Because it's a common world. We sh- the world, you know, I'm looking out of the window right now and there's trees and there's different colors. And it appears to me one way. It may appear to each of you one way. There's something, it's not merely arbitrary, and yet each of us is going to interpret it a different way. And so the point of the early Socrates is that there's no truth to the way I see the world, whether it's the trees or capitalism or socialism or you know, abortion or race, whatever it is, the world appears to me. And there's no truth to the way it should appear. And yet, it's not arbitrary because we have some common world. And the point of the early Socrates is not to educate people to have a true opinion, because there is no true opinion, but to improve them. This is on page 15. To help each person show themselves, to make each citizen and each person more truthful in the sense not of coming to a truth, but in the sense of improving their own many doxi, many opinions. And so the two metaphors that Socrates uses to describe himself frequently and that Arendt here embraces are the gadfly and the midwife especially the midwife here, the gadfly in the sense that you sting people to wake them to, you know, wokeness is a Socratic idea, right? To wake them from their slumbers, to make them alive to the fact that their opinions, their doxa are simply one among many and that they could be wrong. 
and they have to improve their doxa by comparing them with others. And so the gadfly metaphor is wake us up. But the midwife metaphor is to give birth, not to a perfect birth, not to a true, perfect baby truth, but to to help another come to be who they are, to, to help them to be the best of the particular plural person they could be. How the world appears to them, okay, but think critically about how the world appears to you and make it better. And this is where we get to friendship, right? This is the key move in the essay, if we're concerned with friendship. Because friendship, she says, is exactly what this kind of midwifery that Socrates engages in, where we help another be the best themselves they can be, not to be like us, not to be true, but we help someone to be who they are better than they were without leading them to any endpoint that I have. We're not in the late Socrates, the late Plato Platonic dialogue where we try and get them to know what we know, but we want them simply to be the best they can be. I know that's a trite statement. Uh, We're not doing military recruiting here, but to be the best you can be as you are. She says, that's the attitude that's most appropriate and most frequently shared by friends. What a friend is, and if you're if you have a friendship with someone, is you sit down over dinner or lunch or a tea, maybe vodka or a glass of wine, and you talk. And that you're not trying to make your friend like you, and your friend's not trying to make you like them. But you're trying to build a common world where each of you are. We talk about what we have in common. We talk about what's between us, whether it's Hannah Arendt or the hiking trail, the Adirondack Trail. And in talking about what's between us and what we share, it becomes common to us. And yet we allow each other to see it in their own way. And we help them to see it in a way that is their way and yet inflected by ours and thus maybe improved. And not only by ours, hopefully they have other friends and each one of their friends lets them build it in that way. And so um, the world gains, she says on page 16, it gains its special articulateness. It develops and expands. And in the course of time and life, begins to constitute a little world of its own, which is shared in friendship. Now, this is the kind of private friendship, right? The kind of, we were talking about last week, where you build a friendship with someone. And, And Socrates' idea of doxa, of helping people to improve who they are, not by leading them somewhere, but by just reflecting to them and sharing with them and building a common world and talking to them, helping them think through it, is that idea of friendship. Now, on page uh, 16, Arendt goes into a, a negative idea of how this can be used negatively by Socrates, right? And she says, the Greeks were an agonal people. That means there were people of contestation 
and they liked to fight and argue. And they believed in the contest of all against all and showing off and showing oneself to be the best. And in that world, that can ruin politics, she says, because commonness is then built not on relationships on among and between the citizens on a world that between them, but in a way that, you know, they, they contest each other and it can poison the Commonwealth through mutual hatred and an envy. And so what she says is the Greeks had a real problem because of the agonal nature of their politics. They, they poisoned their politics and prevented the kind of common world to emerge through friendship. And so she says what Socrates tries to do in his talks in the marketplace is to make friends out of the Athenian citizens, to build a community or a polis based on the idea that not that we're agonal, that we want to contest each other, that, that we are friends, that we are all different and unequal, but that part of what it means to live in a political community is to come into being through equalizing. And equalizing happens, she says, in all kinds of exchanges. And it happens economically through money. If I give you $10 for a book of Hannah Arendt's, we equalize. We find common ground. If I, you know, give you a pig in return for your being a doctor and helping me get better, we're creating commonalities. We're building a common world. But aside from economic, equalization, she says, there's political equalization, and that happens in friendship. Friendship is the uh, equalization of unequals in politics. And in that sense, politics is the foundation, I mean, it's friendship is the foundation for all politics. On page 17, she'll add that friendship and not justice, now this is a common theme in a lot of her writing on friendship, is to oppose the concern with friendship to the concern with justice, right? She did it in the Lessing essay. She's going to do it here as well. Friendship on page 17, she says, not justice is what is the bond of communities, right? For Aristotle, she says, friendship is higher than justice because justice no longer is no longer necessary between friends. The great politician is not the one who knows what's just. It's not the one who knows the truth. It's the one who can see the world from the greatest number of viewpoints. And so on page 18, she'll say the political element of friendship is that in the truthful dialogue, each of the friends can understand the truth inherent in the other's opinion. It's in friendship that we can not only understand the friend, that's, that's the first step, but it's not the full step. The full step is to understand that in their opinion, which we disagree with, we understand it's true for them. We understand the way they see it. So more than understanding or knowing one's friend as a person is to understand how and in what specific articulateness the common world appears to the other, who is different from us and thus unequal from us. And this kind of understanding and friendship, to see the world from the other person's point of view, she calls the political kind of insight par excellence on page 18. So 
There are two great virtues, she says, for political statespeople, statesmen. One is understanding the greatest possible varieties of realities. And the other is to be able to communicate between citizens and their opinions so that the commonness of the world becomes apparent. And here I'll just mention an anthropologist who did a lot of work in South America, died very young, unfortunately, a French anthropologist named Pierre Clostres, who in, a, in one of the really great books of political anthropology called Society Against the State, talks about how in many early pre-modern societies, the leader, the king figure who's not a king, is not someone who is thought to be wise in the sense of knowing the truth or to have some, you know, his, his role is that he's the one who can speak what the tribe actually believes. He can understand the greatest varieties of realities, and he's able to communicate between the citizens and allow a commonness to emerge. And so he's often called a speaker, and he's the person who speaks the common world to the people. And I think Kostras imagines that as an alternative view of politics to Western sovereign politics. And I think that's very close to. Arendt's idea of of politics as friendship. The rest of the essay moves on. Uh, it's 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 it gets a little bit more concerned with Socrates and Plato. In order to use philosophy to help establish a common world, she says that that Socrates relied on two insights. The first is know thyself, right, to make my doxa more articulate, to know what I the way the world appears to me and have the confidence and faith to express my doxa without trying to turn it into your doxa or accord with the expert doxa. And the other is that it's better to be in disagreement with the whole world than being one to be in disagreement with myself, principle of of non-contradiction. These are central uh, ideas of Socrates that Arendt makes a lot of here and in other books as well. She talks a lot about conscience and how conscience emerges here. Just one or two things to point out. Insofar as I'm talking with myself, right? And I see myself as another, I see within myself another self, that other self in me is changeable. It's not like true. And insofar as it's changeable, it represents not like my truth, but it represents the humanity of all men, she says on page 22. The fact that all men are plural and changing and different. And so when I speak to myself in this internal two-in-one dialogue, I'm actually um, also speaking to all men and all people in the world. And so who I am with myself is also who I am with the doxa of others in the world, with the opinions of others in the world. And thus the way I think and talk with myself is the way I change the world as it appears to me. It's the way I make the world in its commonness by engaging in this dialogue. And so insofar as my conscience is to be in harmony with my other self, it's also to be in harmony with the world that is constantly changing based on the way the world appears itself to me in my 
attempt to think and talk with the world and with all humans in the world. Thus, solitude and thinking are necessary conditionings for the good functioning of a polis, right? You can't be a good citizen if you don't talk with yourself. And in talking with yourself, you're not just talking with yourself, you're talking with all humanity. And thus the elimination of solitude, which is the great danger of totalitarianism, where the walls have ears. Insofar as you stop talking to other people, you stop talking to yourself. That's, I think, one of the, I'm not sure how, you know, I'm not sure I thought about it before I was reading the essay this time in this way. If you stop talking to other people because the walls have ears, because you're worried about, you know, what people will say, you stop talking to yourself because yourself is not just yourself. Yourself is the humanity of all people and the plurality of the world. That's why the loss of free speech, the loss of a world in which people talk, the world of the world where there's multiple opinions is a threat to your very self as a thinking person. There's the last few pages of the book really turn more to Plato, the two turnings, uh, you know, in the cave, the turn to the fire, and then the turn to the ideas. And, and, and the point here is that the philosopher, insofar as they turn to the ideas, the scientist and the expert, insofar as they turn away from doxa, have a prejudice against politics and also experience what she calls the loss of common sense. Um, and this is sort of the last theme of the essay, is that scientists and philosophers uh, become unable to speak in a world of opinions. And to the extent they are unable to do that, they're unable to be friends. I mean, that's actually a, I mean, she doesn't say that directly, but it's something to think about. To the extent you think your pursuit of truth is such that you know the truth and you have to simply convince people of your truth, you're unable to be friends with them. You, you're in a hierarchical relationship and you're unable to accept their way the world appears to them. And that's the danger that philosophy and science and expertise carries for us is the loss of friendship as well as the loss of politics. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. So, uh, welcome, and let's enjoy talking about Hannah Arendt and friendship. James, you're up first. Roger, I just, in the last couple of meetings, I've realized how being part of this group has transformed how I interact um, and just for shits and giggles, if people want to see my world, they can go to 70 Clinton Avenue in Dobbs Ferry on Google Earth and look at this insane pink Victorian house that verges on obscenity in this little community that was designated a special historic district for God knows what reason. Over the last two years, I've been appearing in front of village boards. I said, I broke my uh, silence, my recluseness, and started going to village board meetings and speaking at planning boards and village boards. There's a project going up across the street uh, called the 
Technology and Innovation Center. And I went to that meeting and I said, I support this. They were terrified that I would object to it because it's a huge building right across from my front yard. And I said, no, no, no. In 50 years, people are going to be wondering how the world was changed. And students are going to be coming to this program from around the world to study how Alzheimer's was solved, how climate change. And they're going to want to. So the next day, the, the head of the school comes to me and says, boy, you really blew down the gauntlet. Um, next door is a building that's being transformed from a 200-year-old building to uh, five apartments and down the street. And we are fighting and arguing, zoning rules. People are breaking the rules. And finally, the, the mayor last week launches this effort to restrict the zoning to a certain way of looking net versus growth in terms of the lots that are available. And the mayor came into the meeting assuming that seven people on the village board were going to vote his way. After we talked, I got my three minutes, I suggested to the, to the town, the village, who had been listening to me for two years, I said, you know, think about all these projects. Just listen to what you all said. Listen to how understood each other. Listen to the dimensionality of our thinking. We've developed over this, these, this, this last two years. Understand a new way of thinking about the community. Uh, yeah. Sounds like any Socrates. But, and he said, All right, that's three minutes, James. I said, Thank you. We're going to have a vote now. And four people vote out of the seven voted against this new edict, all thanks to virtual reading. So, See, the virtual reading group has real world impact. Um, so this is great. And I just, I'm going to just give a shout out to your pink house and to the favorite book in my household. The favorite author in my household is Daniel Pinkwater. I don't know how many of you have children and read Daniel Pinkwater, but, uh, uh, he actually is a bard graduate. So he's, uh, at home with us, but his book, the big orange spot, um, is is a, is about someone who builds and paints their house differently in a community and the waves of impact that it has on that community. Um, so you 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 made me you made me think of the big one of my favorite books, the Big Orange Spot, um, for, for for doing that, James. But you know, this is I think you know I I love the way you tell the story because first of all, RN believes that storytelling is the key and the way that we make sense of the world. But, um, you know, this is the story of, of politics as she understands it is, um, the way different people, people look at the world economically, people look at the world artistically, people at the work, look at the world utilitarian, in a utilitarian way. Others have an empathic, empathic or pathetic using pathetic in the Greek sense of feeling view of the world and humanizing the world is talking and listening is 
allowing people to have a different world and understanding that sometimes they're, they're going to disagree with you and that's okay, but, but learning to respect each other. You know, the, 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 the difficulty comes or what are the limits, right? Are there limits at which, you know, we're, we're different and your view wins and my view loses? Are there differences at where, what point you can't tell me I can't have an abortion or you can't tell me that I can't go to an integrated school? Right. There are limits. And, and that's, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a country or a political system like ours, those are what we call, why we call ourselves a constitutional or a limited democracy, right? You, you, you create limits uh, that we have settled as limits. You can't go beyond, even when people democratically choose to go beyond them. You know, you're seeing this in, in Israel right now, you know, where they don't have a written constitution and they're just passing a law saying, we're going to, Get rid of the courts as a limit to political um, action. So, um, thank you for telling the story. Um, and nobody feels like they lost. That's great. It's nice when it works out that way. It doesn't always. I mean, that's the problem, right? I mean, and and we have to realize that that there are times when people talking leads to demagoguery, and. and we have to be aware of that too. And you have to be able to figure out how to respond to that as well. But it's great when it does work, right? And, and it's important to, to, to understand that as well. Amen. Amen. Vigdis. Yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, thoughts coming up here. And uh, I was thinking about this about private and from private to public. And uh, as Arlen says, she, she starts with this uh, experience of talking to oneself at the beginning, as to, to kind of see that there's a kind of plurality, and that is what you have to, to find, to, to be able to make friends. And if you don't have friends, you also keep this uh, plurality, that the respect for them to have other meanings. And this is what you take into the public, to citizens. And I think also that... Uh, the way she thinks of the social for in the human condition is in a way just that it erased the plurality. And I think what we see today is different kinds of, of social spheres. You have it in the social media in form of echo chambers where, where the, there's no plurality. It's kind of erasing plurality and you can see it on state level and you can see it on community level. So it is this kind of making respect and keeping this plurality intact. And I also thought of it, how do we do this? And I was thinking of Norwegian politicians from left to right. They are disagree on issues on political matters, but they are able to party together. And during this partying together, to being together in non-political senses, to, to, to have fun together or to do things together, I think that is a good base for making friendship that will make you kind of keep a respect for them. There is something in that to, to, to learn to know them outside the field where you disagree, to, to kind of make this kind of respect. And also the last thing I, I thought to Mant was this, when, um, when she talks about the protest movement, that that could make friends. And that reminded me of David Graeber when he talked about the Occupy Wall Street. 
because he was in there as a practical anarchist, as he said. To him, it was very important that everyone had their saying when they were meeting up. And he disagreed hardly with those from the leftists who kind of tried to construct this hierarchy that you had one leader to telling the other what to do. So that is also a kind of destroying the kind of plurality. So yeah. I, I, mean, I, was, I don't know if this made much sense. I think I was all over. But no, was it's, that was great, Vigdis. I mean, I, I think the, the first point is really an important one. It is important. I mean, we talked last week about how joy is talkative, right? It's important to have joy with people because if you share a meal or a drink or a tea with people, eventually you're going to talk about things. And even if you're just talking about your kids, you're going to start to find common ground. Um, you know, when, when we used to do these living room conversations, which was a, a program eight or nine years ago that we did at Bard, the first question we would ask everyone who was there was, tell us who you are and what your values are, right? Because part of it is just let people know that you're a real person and that you have values and what they are. And very few people are going to get up there and say, well, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm someone who wants to kill all the people. Right. I mean, everyone comes at it from a position of what we would normally think of as well-meaning goodness. Then the way the world appears to us becomes very different. And some people become, you know, uh, murderers and other people become, you know, saints. Um, but uh, I think it is important to to allow yourself to have joy with people. Now, that said, that's a step. And the second step is finding things that you talk about with your kids or trips you like or movies you like. But the next step is at least risking talking about some political issues, because I think that's I think that's has to be the next step. If you're really a friend, you have to talk about other things as well. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.